It is a privilege to be here. Our family visited last Sunday. Uh, my wife, Brianna, is with me, and we've been married for five years now, and we have two children, Joelle and Reagan John. Uh, Joelle June Maitland is four years old, and Reagan John Maitland, our son, is two and a half. Just turned two. Turned turn two in March. But uh, so the kids were with us last week, and Lord willing, they'll be with us again next week when we come again. So it's a privilege to gather with you. It is a greater privilege to preach God's word and to be able to get the opportunity to teach to you this morning. And so what a joy to see your faces. I'd love to see them all. It's good to see most of you without masks, and Lord willing, one day we won't have to wear them any longer. And We'll get to know each other face to face. Well, uh, I have a question for you this morning. It has to do with my prop that I brought here, okay? Here is my question for Summit Bible Church this morning. What is on your sign? What's on your sign? I know you've seen a lot of these lately across the media, in your uh, news channels, your media streams. A lot of signs with a lot of phrases on them, but I want to ask you. I know you have something important to say. You want to share something with the world. You have important words in an important and critical moment. What are you going to write on your sign? Well, you've seen a lot of these signs across the media. I'm going to read a couple of the phrases that I've seen on the various signs. Justice equals peace. I can't breathe. Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. All lives matter. Defund the police. Silence is violence. I've even seen a few signs that said, I need a haircut. And don't we all? Now, with no comments on those phrases, except for this, I was in my study preparing for this message, and I was thinking about all the signs that I'd seen across the media, and I was struck by the reality that I had not, at that time, I had not seen one sign with the name Jesus on it. Not one. Not one sign at the time pointed or gave any hint to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I thought, what a tragedy. Are people missing it? They're missing hope. They're missing true justice, true peace. Found in one name, the only name I know, to provide those things, and that's the name of Jesus. I was discouraged when I thought about that reality. But I want to show you today two men in the scriptures who hold up one sign. And you guessed it, the name on their sign is Jesus. Why don't you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. The book of Acts marks the beginning of the church and church growth in the early years. It's an incredible book. God does some amazing things in church history, specifically in this book of Acts. And we're going to be looking today, believe it or not, at the whole chapter, Acts chapter 4. Okay, so we'll be going all across this chapter this morning. In Acts chapter 4, like I said, we see two men holding one sign, and on their sign is the name 
Jesus. And why do they only hold up one sign with one name? Because they claim that there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the name is Jesus. Now, Acts chapter 4 gives us a strong testimony that Jesus of Nazareth is the only name with power. It's the only name that can save. It's the only name above all other names. And get this, the title of my message this morning is that his name, Jesus, he cannot be stopped. He can't be stopped. You can find courage in that this morning, that your Savior can't be stopped. You can be comforted this morning, that despite the chaos around you, Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. And Acts 4 provides a strong testimony. Despite the significant opposition that these men face, we know that Jesus cannot be stopped by governments. Jesus can't be stopped by politics. Jesus can't be stopped by religious cults. Jesus can't be stopped when his people are persecuted. Cancel culture can't cancel him. He can't be stopped. So you can be sure, Summit Bible Church, that when the virus spreads, when terrorism strikes, when you see a nation that is divided and appears to be declining, Jesus cannot be stopped. So shouldn't he be the one that we proclaim? Shouldn't he be the one we point to in the midst of adversity and trouble? Shouldn't he be our emphasis? Shouldn't Jesus be on our signs? If we tell the world anything, let us tell them about Jesus. So like I said, we're looking at this whole chapter today and I've split it into three sections. We see it kind of in these three parts. It's a preacher's chapter, three points to the message, uh, which is the typical preacher uh, outline. So the first point is this, if you're taking notes. It's his message cannot be stopped, so proclaim it. His message can't be stopped, so proclaim it. Let's set the scene for Acts chapter 4, this exciting chapter and this exciting time. In Acts chapter 2, you may be familiar, it's the uh, big scene at Pentecost. Okay, And at Pentecost, the apostles filled with the Spirit start to speak languages that they previously did not know. They were speaking in tongues. It caused quite a scene. And then Peter, the apostle, gets up and he preaches a sermon. And man, this sermon was impactful. 3,000 souls are converted after this message. After the scene at Pentecost, Peter and John walking towards the temple in chapter 3. And as they're going up, they see a man who had been lame since birth. This was a known cripple. He was the city cripple. And Peter and John miraculously heal the man. This was not, hey, let me fix your back pain. Or this is not, hey, is your headache gone? This was a clear, miraculous healing in the name of Jesus. This man who could not walk, walked. And then Peter preaches a sermon after the healing. And you thought Pentecost was good. Peter preaches a second sermon. 5,000 souls enter the kingdom of heaven are converted and profess faith in Jesus Christ. Now, 
the whole city of Jerusalem has been turned upside down. And listen, the JBI takes notice. You know who the JBI is? It's the Jewish Bureau of Investigation, okay? The bad guys. They're noticing now. This group, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin, okay? That's where we are in chapter 4 as they were speaking the people to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple. This is in verse 1. And the Sadducees came up to them and they were greatly disturbed. Verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem and they placed them at the center or in the center. Verse 7, I'm skipping around here. And then they began to inquire. Let's, let's set the scene here. This is the Sanhedrin made up of three groups. I'm reading out of the New American Standard, by the way. New, New American Standard Version. So these three groups, okay, I listed them out. Verse 5, you have rulers. Who do they represent? Well, they represent the state. This is the government power in Jerusalem. Big decision makers. You also have the elders. They represent the sacred. These are the religious elites. The priests in the synagogue. The decision makers. And then you have the scribes. These, are, these represent the schools, academia, theologians. They know the scriptures. And the Sanhedrin gathers under, look at verse 6, Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. Now it says Annas is the high priest. The title clings to Annas, but actually at this time, Caiaphas has the position of high priest. Annas is his father-in-law. He kind of has this chancellor emeritus title. He was the high priest, and the Jews see him as the high priest, but he has since retired, and Caiaphas is in charge. We know that because think about the last time that you saw the Sanhedrin gathered like this under the high priest Caiaphas. Do you remember the last time the Sanhedrin gathered and interrogated a man? It was the unjust trial of our Lord Jesus. These are, this is a, a serious group. The last time the Sanhedrin gathered to interrogate a man, it did not go well for the defendant. Remember the scene. It was Caiaphas who looked at the Lord Jesus and said, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus responded and said, You've said it yourself. It was Caiaphas who tore his robes and declared Jesus a blasphemer, knew in that moment he was claiming to be God. And so Caiaphas was the one, along with the Sanhedrin, who initiated the plan, the execution, the crucifixion, and the entombing of Jesus Christ. This group has power. Well, they think they have power and influence. And this is a big moment for these two apostles. Their life is on the line here. And so they put them in the middle, Peter and John, and verse 7, look at the question that they asked them. Verse 7, Acts chapter 4, by what power or in what name have you done this? Brilliant question. They're smart men. They're getting right to the issue. Who cares that all of a sudden all these people are speaking in different languages? Who cares that they so clearly healed a man who previously could not walk? They say, tell us, what, what was that name that you mentioned? Right? Begging them to say Jesus. Because if they say Jesus, who are they? 
blasphemers just like Jesus of Nazareth. And so really the Sanhedrin, they set the ball on the tee for the apostles to respond one of two ways. The apostles could say, yes, Jesus is the man we proclaim, or they could choose to be cowardice, cowardly, and deny him. They have two choices. Thankfully, Peter stands up and gives one of the strongest gospel proclamations recorded in all of Scripture. But first, before we get to Peter's answer, because it is good, we're going to look at it. Let me ask you, just to add some drama to the scene, where was Peter the last time the Sanhedrin gathered to indict the Lord Jesus Christ? Peter was in the shadows denying him. You remember that? Peter said three times during the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin trial, he said three times, I don't know him. I don't know him. And the third time, Peter added curse words and said, I don't know him. The lowest moment in Peter's life. He, the rooster crowed, he locked eyes with his Savior, and all oh, the guilt and the shame that came over him. What a moment for Peter. I'm sure remembering that, that moment always ringing in his ears. But by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does Jesus do? He restores Peter. And what is, where do we see him now? In the middle of that same group, not denying the Lord, but proclaiming him. Not a coward, but a hero. By the grace of God. Isn't this such a great testimony that no matter you know, how bad we fail, man, sometimes we lack the courage to speak. We're the cowards sometimes, aren't we? We fail often to proclaim the Lord Jesus when we have an opportunity to do so. And Jesus, in his grace, gives us more opportunities to proclaim him. A second chance here for Peter. Redemption. And Peter, this time, does not fail. Peter's message We proclaim Jesus. That's what he says. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 here. We're going to start here. It says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The message is clear. It cannot be misunderstood. In fact, Peter says, Jesus, and yes, the one from Nazareth. The one who is the promised Christ, the Messiah, the stone you rejected, that would become the cornerstone of our faith. The one who out-taught your scribes with authority. The one who out-pastored your elders and priests. Yes, the blasphemer that you crucified proved himself the redeemer that God raised from the dead. And he is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Jesus is our message. 
the message of the gospel. He is who we proclaim. Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. And that is so good. That is good truth because our salvation depends on it. Depends on his life, his death, and his resurrection. There's salvation in no one else. There's hope in no one else. There's true peace, true justice in no one else. There's no other name under heaven more worthy or more deserving to be on our side if we tell the world nothing else. Let us tell them about Jesus. What an incredible message in an incredible moment. Paul knew this. Paul had the same message. What did he say in Colossians 1.28? We proclaim him. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You want to know what will bring tens of thousands of people into the kingdom of God? It is not a cultural movement. It's a gospel message. So proclaim it. Proclaim it. We have a message to proclaim, even at such a time as this. I don't know. I don't want to make assumptions. I don't want to assume that everybody in this room or even those watching online have believed in Jesus, have put their faith in Jesus and him alone. So this is the message we believe. Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Jesus came to this earth, truly God, truly man. And live the perfect life that me and you could not live. We're sinners. Far from perfect and we all know it. Our conscience bears witness. We've all failed. We've all fallen very short of the glory of God. But Jesus did not. Jesus was sinless. Lived a righteous life. And then was put to death on a cross. And when we see the cross, we think of it and we look and see it as a physical torture device. Which it is. Crucifixion was a gruesome death, physically torturous. But listen, that wasn't the worst of it. On the cross, Jesus didn't just suffer physically, but he suffered under the wrath of his own father. He became our substitute so that while he hung there on the cross, he was bearing the wrath for our sins, the ones that me and you committed. He died for our sins, took our place. And took our sins to the grave with him. He said at the end of his time up there on the cross, he said, it is finished. He was talking about paying for our sins in full. And then he died and he was buried, but he did not stay in the ground. He rose again from the dead. Our victorious champion, Jesus Christ, who declared victory over sin and death, conquered the grave and rose to new life, giving me and you new life in Christ if we would believe in him, put our trust and faith in him and in him alone, not our works, we will be saved. And we are granted new life in Jesus Christ. That is our message. Jesus lived, died, and rose again from the dead. And he alone is our salvation. Isn't that good news? That's the message we proclaim from the mountaintops. So my encouragement to you this morning, if you have not yet believed, is that you would believe in Jesus and be saved. You'd repent of your sins and trust wholly in the work and the life of Jesus Christ. Are you weary this morning? In Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. 
I'll give you rest for your souls. Do you believe that you are oppressed? You've been treated unfairly in life. Psalm 146 tells us how blessed is he whose hope is in the Lord. He executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. Are you self-righteous? Do you fancy yourself a good person, able to earn heaven by your own good works? The rich young ruler was, and Jesus told him, See your sin, sell your idols, and follow me. Jesus is who we proclaim. We encourage all to go to Jesus. The good news message of the gospel is the only message with saving power. And so Peter preaches the gospel with absolute courage and boldness, and the JBI is left speechless. Isn't that amazing? They have nothing to say. Look back at Acts chapter 4 and look at verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were, this is hilarious, uneducated and untrained men. Talk about God using the foolish things to shame the wise. They were amazed, the text says. Verse 14, seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. They had no rebuttal. The council says, verse 16, what shall we do with these men? The fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. And listen to these words carefully. And we cannot deny it. Oh, the irony of that statement. The irony of that statement. The sad irony is that as they audibly say, we cannot deny the miracle, they continue to deny the message. They continue to deny the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What a tragedy for these men. And it's no wonder that Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem, he weeps. Weeps over unbelieving Israel. May we not be that people. But believe the message. It was not enough for them, by the way, to believe the sign. It's not enough for them to believe the miracle. A lot of people say, you know, if only God would show me a miracle, show me a sign, then I might believe. No, you won't. You'll only believe if you respond to the message of the gospel. The word of God has the power to change your heart. So in verse 18, they commanded them, (laughs) they commanded them, verse 18, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And what did they say in verse 20? We cannot stop. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Listen, the gospel message can't be stopped. Can't be stopped. Cannot be stopped. Not by oppression, persecution, government control, culture control. It cannot be stopped as long as there are believers here on this earth to spread it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.9, while he's in chains... He says, the word of God cannot be chained. So let me ask you, do you have another message? Do you have something more important to share with the world? Something more important to write on your sign than the message of the gospel? Than to point people to Jesus Christ? Is your hope during this time or your faith in a different system or a structure or a person? Man, have... You've been discouraged, as I have as well, I'll be the first to admit, watching or watching the news, reading news feeds. Seems like there's no hope. You know, a lot of people have said, I've lost faith in humanity. I've lost faith in American politics. 
I've lost faith in the government. Friend, your faith is in the wrong object. Our faith is in Jesus, remember? And he cannot be stopped. Paul Washer said, I can't stand it when Christians have more hope in their political party than in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us set our minds on the true object of our faith, our Lord Jesus. He and his gospel cannot be stopped. Number two, his message can't be stopped, so proclaim it. Number two, his plan can't be stopped, so trust it. We transition now to a time where the people are proclaiming in the sovereignty of God. They sing this song in the text, proclaiming in the sovereign control of God. Look at verse 23, Acts chapter 4. When they had been released, miraculously they were released, even after they said, we cannot stop speaking about Jesus. Incredible. They went back to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, Oh Lord, it is you. Let's stop there. How often do you say that when things go well in your life? You stop to say, Oh Lord, it's you. The credit, the glory, all control is in your hands. It's you, Lord. When there's success in business, success in ministry, Success in relationships, success in the home, success with your children, growth. Do you stop to say, Lord, it's you. Thank you. What a blessing. You look in this text, actually, between verses 24 and verse 30, you see so many times the word you or your said there in reference to God. Let me just read through them. Oh, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth. Truly in this city there are gathered, verse 27, together against your holy servant Jesus, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Verse 29, and now Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Verse 30, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Lots of yous, lots of yours. All giving glory and acknowledging that God is in control. He has a plan. He has a plan and he's accomplishing his plan. And we see God's sovereignty expressed in three areas here in this text. Three areas proclaiming God's sovereignty over three things. The first is God's sovereignty over creation. God is our sovereign creator. Look back at the text, verse 24. Oh Lord, it's you who made the heavens and the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. Now, this is a popular song in Israel. It's been sung many times. Exodus 20, verse 11, Nehemiah 9, 6, same song, Psalm 146, 6. Why is this song sung over and over and over? You know why? It's so important to start with God as our creator. That's where it all begins, doesn't it? Go back to Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created God created. That's where it all starts. God is the creator. The implication is that the creation is his. If you made it, you own it, and you have control over it. He has the patent. You know, if you've spent 10 minutes with a toddler in their toys, you know this phrase. It's mine. Right? Oh, man, I've heard that way too many times already in my life. It's mine. 
right? And the implication for the toddler is if it's mine, I have control over it. I decide who gets to play with it and who doesn't get to play with it. It's under my control. Well, listen, creation is our Lord's. He made it. He owns it. He controls it. He's sovereign over all of creation, and he does what he wants. He has sovereign control over creation. The second category of God's sovereign control here we see is God has sovereign control even over his enemies. Isn't that interesting? God controls his enemies. Look at verse 25. By the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. What a bold stand, right? To stand up against the Lord? These are his enemies. This is an old prophecy and the apostles talk about the fruition of it happening in Jerusalem. At that time they say in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, including the Sanhedrin. Look at this though, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. See, the Sanhedrin thought themselves strong. They considered themselves powerful. They had influence. They crucified the Lord. They took care of the problem. No, they did whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. He is in control, even over his enemies. We see this all across the Bible, actually. If you go back to the Old Testament, you see the Assyrian Empire. They rise up and take Israel captive. Man, the Assyrians could have a big head. They had a great empire. They were world dominant at the time, 700 B.C. or so. And Job 12 says he makes the nations great, and then he destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. God says also in Isaiah, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. In other words, Assyria was simply a disciplinary agent that God used to spank Israel. They were just used in his hand to accomplish his purpose. God is in sovereign control even over his enemies, even when things don't look like they're going well, even when people reject him, even when people start to follow and embrace a different set of morality, even when a nation is divided and seems to be declining, walking away from its roots, God-given morality, God is still in control. Do you want someone to blame for the decline of American society? Does it seem as if God has lost control? No, be confident. God is in control. He is in control. And he is still writing his story. We can trust him. We can trust his plan, even now. The third category of God's control is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over his enemies. And he's sovereign over gospel advancement. This is where God's sovereignty and man's responsibility collide. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. What a prayer. 
In this prayer, the apostles acknowledge the sovereignty of God, God's control, God's power in gospel advancement. And at the same time, they ask for courage and strength to fulfill their responsibility. See, some people who trust in the sovereignty of God would say, well, God's sovereign. So, you know, I can sit on my hands and I don't have to share the gospel because he's just going to save who he's going to save. Now, there's people on the other hand who say, oh, I absolutely have a responsible to share the gospel. And by the way, it all depends on me and my strength and my gospel presentation and my marketing plan to save people. No, 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 no. God is sovereign and we are responsible. Those are not contradictory truths, but they sing in harmony, sweet harmony, as we evangelize and share the gospel. We trust that he's going to do the work of salvation and we fulfill our responsibility to share our faith boldly and often. You know, Philip Brooks writes, don't pray for an easy life. Pray to be stronger men and women. Don't pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Our task is to share the gospel. God is in sovereign control, but our task and responsibility is to speak the word. Why don't you turn to Acts chapter 6 for a second. I want to show you uh, God's church growth plan. Don't you want a good church growth plan? How do you grow a church? How does a church grow? How can you see it grow numerically and in depth, in health? What's God's design? How did he design for a church to grow? Look at Acts chapter 6 and look at this evidence we see here in verse 7. Acts 6, 7 says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. How does a church grow? By faithful men and women speaking the word, preaching the gospel. As the word of God spreads, God works through his living and active word, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce to the heart and save men. That's God's church growth plan, is that we would spread the word. We would share our faith, preach the gospel. Speak the word. And that's what the apostles pray for. Grant us that we may speak your word with all confidence. What's going to change the sinner? Do we need control of the government? Do we need control of culture? Do we need more signs and wonders? No, we need to speak his word and trust in God's sovereign control that he will fulfill his plan. It's his design. Now, I played football in high school. And... Uh, so I'm going to use a football illustration. I'm going to walk you through it. So don't be intimidated if you don't know anything about football. But I think it emphasizes the point here. I played slot receiver and my number was four. And we had this play called the 45 counter. And it's a run play. And guess who gets the ball? Me. I love this play. We had lots of success with this play. Now it's the 45 counter because the four back, me, runs through the five hole. Following so far? Okay, just keep with me here. The 45 counter. And so my coach is trying to explain this play to me at practice. We're learning the play. And he says, Morgan, you have to be patient for the play to work. Okay? He said, a significant part of the 45 counter is that you would take a counter step. 
You have to take the counter step, Morgan, because you have to wait for the pulling guard to come through and open the five hole. So Morgan, you have to be patient. Take the counter step and then come across and receive the ball from the quarterback and you're running free through the five hole. And so I said, okay, coach, okay. And then I got back to run the play and I'm impatient. And I just stutter and I run as fast as I can. I grab the ball from the quarterback and yes, Moses had not come yet and the sea had not part. The hole wasn't open. And so I was in trouble. I had to run outside and tackle. Coach said, run the play again. I said, okay. So I went back and we ran the play again. I did the exact same thing. I did not take the counter step. I got the ball too quickly. The hole had not opened. Moses had not come. And so I went outside and I was tackled. It didn't work. Coach went over to me. I'll never forget it. He grabbed me by the face mask. He said, Maitland, run the play the way it's designed or I will find someone else who will. Friends, God has given us his plan. He's given us what we, our task, our design, what we are put on this earth to do as faithful believers. That is to spread the good news of the gospel, to speak the word. If you're not going to do it, he'll find someone else who will. Speak the word. Trust God's plan. It cannot be stopped. Point number three here. Point number three. His message can't be stopped, so proclaim it. His plan can't be stopped, so trust it. And number three, his church cannot be stopped, so join it. Join it. Become one with the church. I want you to look at verse 32 here of Acts chapter 4. What an important verse that emphasizes such an important principle in the church. Acts 4.32, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart, and soul. One heart and soul. That one, that word one is important. I don't know if you forgot already, but if you go back to verse 24, what did they do? They lifted their voices to God with one accord. The church was unified. Unified. What an incredible contrast to the world around us. Unity in the church looks so different from the division out there in the world. And you see unity as a result of faithful gospel witness. Unity. Church unity. Listen, it shows us a a principle that is true. If the church is angrily divided, it's because one party or both has abandoned the priority and centrality of the gospel. Said in other words, the further you move away from the gospel, the more divided you become. The closer you are to the true gospel, faithful gospel witness, the mission, the more unified you become. Why? It's because the gospel unifies us, doesn't it? Jesus Christ is the only one who can unify two people from completely different backgrounds, completely different ethnicities, completely different life experiences. Jesus Christ brings those two people together, unified under one name, the name of Jesus. You all know the shape of a triangle, an upright triangle, right? There's a simple illustration. You have a top point and you have the two base points. Now, 
its geometry. The further the two bottom points move away from the top point, they become further from what? Each other, right? But reverse, the closer the two bottom points come to the top point, they become closer together. The gospel is our priority, and it's what we center our lives on. The further we move away from the gospel, the more divided and separated we become. The closer we are to the gospel, remembering it, keeping it central, keeping it our priority, staying on mission, the more unified we become. Listen, we can't be concerned, so concerned with the secondary, tertiary issues, whether they're political issues, preferential issues, speculations. You know, Paul said, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Why? They produce quarrels. They divide. But a Christ-centered, a word-saturated, a gospel-preaching, a missional, unified church will not be stopped. They'll be unified despite incredible opposition from counterfeit religion, from government, from culture. I mean, what do you think Peter was saying as he's remembering Christ's words? He sees the church growing even despite the opposition. And more is to come in the book of Acts. But as Peter sees this, and he sees the church growing numerically, but becoming more one together, don't you think Peter was remembering the Lord's words to him? Jesus told Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The church will not be stopped, can't be stopped. So join in. Be unified with brothers and sisters around you. Talk about the priority. Center your life on the priority of the gospel. You'll be unified in mission and unified together in love. You need courage today, Christian? Are you struggling with doubt? Are you overwhelmed by a nation declining? Have we forgotten Christ's words in John 16? He said, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. And there is a lot of tribulation out there. But take courage, I have overcome the world. We can trust Christ's words and be encouraged by a strong testimony. In Acts chapter 4, the testimony we needed this morning to remind us that Jesus is our message. We proclaim him. And God's word has told us this was his plan all along. We need to trust his plan. When Jesus' church, Christ's church, is unified in gospel witness, when they're on mission, when they're centered on the gospel and prioritize it. So join in. And in the name of Jesus and by his power, these things cannot be stopped. Even in a culture divided, even with significant opposition. So don't worry. Don't fret. Don't be discouraged. Stay on mission. I... Um, confessed earlier that I was discouraged. I was looking for signs that had the name Jesus on it, and I couldn't find one. Not not even one sign across the media that pointed or hinted toward the true gospel. And I was discouraged. But you know how the Lord works. You know how he encourages. I'm not making this up. That same day, I was driving down a busy street in Menifee, down south where we live 
And I saw a group of what, it looked, what looked like protesters on the corner. And they were holding signs. But it was interesting. The group was not wearing black. The group was wearing red. It was a group of African-American protesters. And I thought, that's strange. It doesn't seem to be a part of the popular movement right now. It seems to be a little bit different. But I couldn't read their signs, and I drove closer. And as I drove by, I saw one black man holding these two signs. The first sign said, need hope. And the second sign said, ask me about Jesus. What an encouragement. He can't be stopped. We shouldn't be discouraged. We know our hope and trust is in him, the name of Jesus and his name alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we need your encouragement every day. We need to be reminded from the testimonies of the scriptures and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that we have every reason to be encouraged and every reason to have hope. Our hope is in Jesus, and he is unstoppable. God, I pray that you would, dis- you would take us away from lesser distractions, lesser hopes, Lord, fix our eyes on Jesus, our true hope and joy in times of trouble. God, I'm thankful for your design, your plan in this time to give us the church, your bride, to gather together, to be encouraged by one another, to stimulate one another in love and good deeds, Lord. Pray that you remind us to be unified, to be together, and to be about the gospel, the main thing, the priority. Lord, help us not to become distracted by lesser things, less important things. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you for such, such love as this, that you would send your son, Jesus, to die for our sins. It's in his name we pray. Amen.